Well, good morning here on Tuesday in London, a sort of rainy start to the day, but uh, brightening up as we have two special guests today, uh, Sharon Kamathi and Tanya Andreessen. And they're going to be talking today about the UK challenger banks, the three C's, core, culture, and challenges. Uh, and I think it's going to be quite interesting for many of us because they've got a very rich view of challenger banks, uh, not, not just the business model, about how they're actually conducting themselves. Now, many of you will know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm the executive chairman of Zen Group. And it really is my pleasure uh, to be able to introduce uh, so many of these fantastic webinars. But it's only possible thanks to our sponsors. We have a wide variety of sponsors drawn from technology, economics, and finance. And of course, uh, many of them here today are involved in challenger banks, either uh, funding them, uh, competing against them, cooperating with them, or supplying technology to them, or even analyzing them. Uh, and uh, you can look up uh, Tanya and Sharon's uh, backgrounds and details at uh, Banking Technology. And so we really do have two experts here today to analyze the situation of those challenger banks. Now, the format as ever is that uh, my job is to get out of the way and let you hear from the experts. Uh, please remember that we'll be having a discussion session after about 20, 25 minutes as uh, Sharon and Tanya make their case. Uh, please do type your questions into the GoTalk to webinar facility. No point in emailing them to me because I'm online here with you uh, and I'll only get them afterwards. Uh, and I suspect given the very large turnout today, I might recommend getting your questions, comments or observations in early uh, so that we have time to address them. So with no further ado, uh, I, I think I'd like to hand the floor over very much uh, to uh, Tanya and Sharon. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Hi, everyone. So to begin with, we have a quick poll for our audience um, on how familiar are you with the UK Challenger Bank's landscape? And so I know it really well. I know it somewhat. I'm only familiar with most commonly used names such as Starling and Monzo, or I have absolutely no idea. That's super, folks. And if you look at the GoToWebinar facility, uh, you just uh, go in there and vote. Don't think you need much instruction from me. Uh, Two-thirds of the audience have already voted in 20 seconds, so that's hands-on buzzers. This is a very fast crowd. I think they should all be out there with Paxton on University Challenge. Okay, well, the vast majority of uh, folks have voted, so I'm going to close the poll now and uh, just show you the results, if I may. Um, All so right. we have a, an audience that knows it somewhat or is uh, familiar with the, the, the bigger names. Well, that's interesting to know. We hope that by the end of this presentation, uh, you will be more familiar and more confident in the UK Challenger Banks landscape. So let's proceed to the first um, slide. So let's talk about the first c of our three c's of challenger banks which is core banking at the core and at the heart of each bank there is an engine the core banking system and in the uk there are several routes that challenger banks go to select their solution the first one is in-house development and as you can see from this slide there are a number of examples of banks that opted to build their own systems from scratch and there are some clear pros for it, right? You get modern technology, there is no legacy, 
you have the system customized specifically for your institution and for your business. And of course, you have flexibility and fast time to market. Zopa CEO, for instance, speaking at last year's Cybos conference, said that launching new products on their in-house built system uh, is possible in days rather than in months. And also they can do multiple releases a day. So Zopa's uh, core banking system is based on the Amazon cloud tech stack. It uses Microsoft services architecture and is mainly built in Java. Uh, Bunk, which is a Dutch bank now present in the UK, describes itself as a bank built by coders and it has its custom built solution built all the way from the database level to the app level, including the card processing. And it also favors the Amazon cloud. Uh, Clear Bank, another UK bank for agency and clearing banking, uh, uses custom built solution Microsoft Azure. So you can see that the cloud is key in the modern technology stack and most challenger banks prefer it. There are, however, some cons, of course, of having an in-house built uh, system. And one of them is limited functionality and limited scalability. As the bank grows, as it offers more products, as it has more customers and transactions, an in-house system might not be able to cope. And of course, you're tied to the development team uh, which built the system in the first place. So you might find it hard to replace. Let's go now to the next slide, please. So another route is to select a third party tried and tested system. And the school of thought here is that a core banking system is nothing more than just a transactional database, a commodity. So it doesn't matter if it's a little bit older, as long as it's reliable and well-proven and what you, how you differentiate yourself is you wrap it around with digital, more modern solutions and customer-facing base, customer tools. Again, as you can see from this slide, there are quite a few different banks that went down the route of tried and tested system with a tried and tested provider. The pros are clear, it's expertise, longevity, the procurement department usually likes it, and you also have a really wide resource availability in the market. You have the cons as well, right? The costs might be high, although it should be noted that quite a few old standing providers have adapted their systems and their cost packages to suit the startups. And of course, you are a um, small fish in a big pond, right? So you might be at the back of the queue when it comes to the best resources or uh, you know, availability or customer service. And you could argue there is some legacy tech or might be there as well. But even with these options, you can still, um, it is very clear that all these banks favor either a cloud setup or at least a hosted setup. So for instance, Alba, which is a Scottish bank, um, chose Terminus Transact Core Banking System on Microsoft Azure. BFC Bank uses the Olympic Core Banking System from Airy Bankaria, which is supplied on a hosted basis, um, hosted by Blue Chip. And for instance, Hamden & Co, another Scottish bank, um, chose Flexcube from Oracle, which is hosted uh, in Oracle's database, um, databases, uh, data centers in Dublin. Okay, let's uh, take a look at the next slide. So then um, here we've got a very interesting proposition with the new banks partnering with new core banking uh, software providers. 
And similar to the banking space being challenged and disrupted by the newcomers, the core banking software space is experiencing some, something similar. So we've got quite a few of those examples on the uh, slide here. And the pros are clear, right? You get modern technology. You also get extra effort and extra attention from a smaller company, which is trying to make its mark. And the costs are probably a bit more reasonable as well. Uh, on the con side, it is, uh, most of these solutions are not as proven. Some of them are so new that they're unproven. You get limited resources in the market and you do get the lack of the company longevity, which quite often institutions feel weary of partnering with. So in these examples, you've got uh, Mambu, which is a German core banking software vendor. It's currently about 10 years old. It's got, it has some success around the world. And in the UK, Oak North, quite a well-known SME challenger, um, has become its first um, client site and the first user of core banking software in the Amazon cloud. Um, Thought Machine, UK born and bred core banking software vendor, has Moniz and Bank for Expats and Atom, Savings and Mortgages Bank amongst its uh, clients. And another interesting case to flag here is Redwood, an SME challenger which uses the DPR core banking system uh, on Microsoft Azure, which is the first site in the UK to use Microsoft Azure for core and the first one for DPR. Um, Let's uh, quickly go to the next slide, uh, please. And we've got on our website, fintechfutures.com, a long extensive list of all the challenges and challenger banking services, not just banks, who um, are present or about to launch in the UK. And as of the latest count, it's 125 of them. So do check them all out. We update our list regularly. And now over to Sharon, please, to talk about the second C, the culture. Thank you so much, Tanya. Um, so I'm sure we've all heard a lot about, you know, diversity and how much we need to see it in the sector. Um, but I don't want to sort of bang the, bang the table too much about it. But it is a problem, actually, that will come up later that people are getting a little bit fatigued about it. And that has its own problems that I'll dive into. But first... I want to dive into whether employees rate their culture and values favorably, whether or not challenges are internally diverse, um, despite seeking the services of diverse groups within their marketing materials. And I'll break it down by race, gender and talent pool. And then I'll let you know why it matters and why diversity fatigue is a real problem. Um, so after that, I'll then wrap it up with some new challenger bank models that we're seeing and those cater to a person's ethnicity or culture and also some of them cater to their values. Um, and then after that, I'll wrap it up with a few of the challenges that I'd seen um, before Tanya takes it back over. All right. So next slide. All right. So um, and Glassdoor, um, which is sadly the only thing that we have to go by these days and um, people rating things before Google probably comes in and snaps something up. The people start rating it that way. But um, people did echo all their sentiments um, on it with roughly an average of about 100 reviews each. So um, the main issue here was to do with managerial um, and staffing uh, organizational issues. So um, some of them did note in their feedback, I won't say which because I'm not here to like embarrass any bank, but 
um, it was a trend seen across all of them, to be honest, which is that they are managers out there with negative people skills. Um, and the overall feedback was a disorganized culture. Um, CEOs deliberately setting unachievable targets, expecting people to work over the weekend, um, wanting people to just focus on the job and for it to take over their lives. Um, people saying that there's a lot of stress due to the challenge of being a startup and people are fearing weekly that they'll lose their jobs. Um, so lots of people did note that working within these environments is essentially a place that will test your mental health. Um, which is not great. So overall, the culture was not as supportive and positive as it seemed from the outside is what quite a few people did note. Um, and why is this important, you ask? Well, it's actually something that the UK government is taking seriously, too. So the Financial Services Skills Task Force. Um, so they were essentially uh, commissioned by the chairman of the Exchequer uh, in 2018. And they had a whole year to get their findings, which they deliberated on on 2019. And they essentially said that the sector's success is under pressure from a number of mega trends. And so these trends are essentially to do with um, the changing demographics, globalization, data and technology. And also these things impact people. So there's a growing appetite for diversity of new skills and knowledge um, and also a, a differentiation of the behaviors that we have before to how it is going now. So that's essentially what they were trying to target. And as you'll see, um, people within these challenger banks um, did echo the sentiments that it's not actually something that's being taken seriously, even though people really should. Next slide, please. All right, so I wanna talk about marketing versus reality, because oftentimes, as you'll see in this slide, they do like using people of color in order to show their promotional materials. Um, you'll see it, in the tube, you'll see it when walking around bus stops, you'll see it on your television. And I just want to then give you an accurate picture as to what is actually going on internally. Next slide, please. All right. So despite all the promotional material and people posting black squares around June this year, uh, the actual um, number of people who are in the workforce who are people of color is quite low. So as you can see on this slide, the Office for National Statistics data between 2004 and 2018, which is sadly the most recent data that we have, shows that a sample size out of 40,000 who were surveyed, so it wasn't like a, a broad range, um, saw that there were only 16.7% who were black workers, and that's across the spectrum, so Caribbean, African, British, um, and also 14.6% Pakistani, Bangladeshi. And I'd like to highlight that these uh, groups of people are actually disenfranchised way more than Indian and Asian um, people who seem to be um, highly sort of seen within this banking and finance sector. So yeah, great for them, I guess. <laughs> but um, if you have questions for that, I would love to um, unpack that trip. Um, going down as well. So um, usually the, that sort of data set should be able to essentially break down what's going on on a broader scale. Um, and when there was a commission survey by the City UK, it did find out that there were like nine out of 10 of financial services workers were white. Um, and it is in line with the UK population as a whole, but it doesn't reflect the urban centers across the country. And this is where loads of people of color actually work in the sector. And that's where they're based. So London, Birmingham, Manchester, um, and it, it just goes to show that it's quite a low breakdown. Um, and there is an issue of data, as I've mentioned before, that this is the most recent. So I essentially sent out a bunch of questions to all the challenger banks that we've mentioned earlier on. 
And only one actually responded to me, and that's Oak North. So Oak North came forward with statistics, um, and they essentially broke it down to 30% people of color, as you can see on that slide. Um, 3% were black, um, 1% Latinx, 2% mixed race, and 2% ethnic other. Um, and Monzo as well had theirs online. So they note that um, only 16% of the company have people of, of color within their roles. And the breakdown is 3.1% black, 1.3% other, 4.8% mixed, 7% Asian, and 83.8% white. So through this, they also said that only 6% of their leadership team have people of color. And it increases to 15% if they include those with leadership and managerial responsibilities. Now, that's for them to decide what that term means, but um, it's still quite low. Um, and these figures are not to essentially say, oh, well, look at how poor they are. Um, it's actually more valuable to have the data. So if you're out there, if you work within these kinds of banks, I urge you to please control find my name within your inbox and you'll probably see something from me just asking for the data. So that way we can collect it and, and paint an actual, like accurate picture as to what's really going on within these banks. Um, but we can only go by what we have. Um, also, Monzo was criticized over the summer too. So um, during the Black Lives Matter protest, their um, diversity and inclusion manager said that she was one of the 80 Monzo employees who may be made redundant. So that's uh, really fun to unpack. So uh, gender diversity too, there is an issue there. As you can see, there's loads of figures that show that um, women as, as well are impacted within the field. So figures from Innovate Finance and EY's FinTech 2019 census show that women account for just 29.5% of FinTech employees based in the UK, and only 17% of these are in the executive level, 12% of FinTech founders are women, and also just 2% of venture capital has women within it. So it was pretty much the same sort of trend as you can see um, throughout each. So it's basically just saying, even though we are around, um, we're not really seen in any sort of senior levels. Next slide, please. Talent pool. So the issue mainly lies within people who are actually going into the tech sector um, as part of their academia and higher education. Um, so as you can see with the UCAS data, it shows that um, students who are studying computer science and technology and things that you would then need to go into um, finance and technology and fintech were quite low in terms of the takeout for, for women. So um, as you can see there, only 19% were women who were studying this. And it's, it's a sad trend because you see it consistently. Um, so with that 2018 data, it also noted that only 35% of STEM students, so it's across science and maths and stuff, um, they were women. And um, that was in comparison with obviously like a huge quantity of men um, in these roles. Uh, also, there was LinkedIn data through the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap 2020 report, and it estimated that 26% of workers in data and AI roles uh, were female workers, 15% of workers in engineering, and also 12% of workers in cloud computing roles. So again, that's still quite the low uptake. Um, and it essentially just goes down the pipeline, right? Because if you have um, a low uptake in people going into tech roles from the beginning, you'll continue to see the sort of trend towards uh, the recruitment process. And that's why it's important. It's important for us to focus on how we can, as an industry, try and convince um, young women to go into this role. Also, because these are the people who are setting these algorithms and they decide how these products look like and who to cater to. 
um, because that's also an issue. Next slide, please. So this is a quick poll um, and hopefully we'll have enough time to go through it. So do you think your organization handles diversity um, appropriately and demonstrates a true commitment to diversity and inclusion? Yes, it does. No, it does not. Or I don't know. That's super. Uh, Sharon, the poll's just underway now. Um, it's an extremely swift audience. Uh, we're uh, 12 seconds in and over half of them voted. <laughs> Fantastic. Give it just a few more seconds. Great. I'll just close the poll now and uh, share the results. Brilliant. Well, I'm really glad to see that it does. Um, and I guess 15%, they, those people need to work on it. <laughs> I hope they take things seriously in the future. Very All right, good. next slide, please. All right, so why does it matter? So there's actually a potential benefit to the UK economy for, for representation from people of color across the labor market and also women too. Um, so it's estimated to be about 24 billion a year, which represents about 1.3% of GDP. And that was according to, again, the McGregor Smith review, as you can see on, on the slide. Um, and the reason why this also matters and why diversity is important is because we're starting to see diversity fatigue, which is happening loud and clear. So statistics by PDT Global, um, and they're a recruitment um, agent that focuses on um, diversity, they reveal that 60% of the privileged group in an organization in the UK, so that's fintechs that's usually white, middle class, heterosexual men, believe that they will get overlooked for the next promotion in favor of a diverse candidate. And obviously you have to examine and deal with the psychological consequences of that because we're not actually seeing that happen. Um, if that were true, these numbers that I've highlighted to you would be very, very different. Um, so please do sit tight and please do bear with when people are talking about diversity because it's a real issue and it does impact people when they start thinking that there is diversity fatigue. Um, and also there's structural and historical bias, of course, that I'm sure a lot of you might be well versed in. But um, if not, I advise you to please look it up. There's so many um, good books out there um, for, for you to check, uh, but I won't dive into that too much here. I just want to let you guys know that they are structural issues. <laughs> All right, next slide, please. Um, and with that comes some new opportunities. So we've seen with Kestrel, which is an ethical banking fintech, um, it's set to launch later this year, and its offering will be Sharia compliant, making it an option for the UK and Muslim community, similar to Naya and RISD. Uh, so those are all uh, digital Islamic banks coming up. And then there's Atman Bank, which is the first UK black owned challenger bank um, as co-founders Marvin Smith and Dele Abebu um, essentially said that members of the Windrush generation set up the UK's first credit union back in 1964. So they were essentially saying, why don't we see any established black owned UK founded banks? I guess we'll just do that then. We'll just become that for people. Um, which is great. And we're also seeing um, other marginalized groups coming together and forming their own banks. Sadly, we haven't seen it at the UK level, but it is out there. So Brazil had the first ever LGBTQI bank, Pride Bank. Then in the US, they had B Money, um, and that was all between 2019 and this year. 
Um, hopefully we'll see one in the UK in the future, but it's not all. So there's also uh, sustainability, which is a growing interest segment as well. So we've seen Novus, which is in the midst of launching a sustainable lifestyle application and Ticker, an investment sustainability app that was founded in Manchester. We've also got TreeCard, which is set to launch next year in the US and potentially in the UK. And that also focuses on sustainability. Um, LA has similar ones too. So it's got Aspiration Bank. Um, and it allows users to round up purchases. So hopefully we'll see the sort of thing grow in the UK. Um, next slide, please. So what are the challenges? So for my part, I'm going to talk about the IT outages um, and also the compliance issues. So next slide. All right, so IT outages, there have been quite a lot of system failures that we saw all throughout last year and 2018. Um, and consumer group which said in November that big banks suffered 265 tech outages between October 2018 and September 2019. Um, and they were figures based on data from the FCA. So this translates to people not actually trusting the banks and actually Finbold and Jeffrey's data from this year showed a quick uptick in incumbent banks. So loads of people are now using incumbent bank apps and they are using challenger bank apps. Um, mainly because we've seen challenger banks such as Monzo and Revolut face constant outages this summer. And also throughout just last week, there was another outage in Revolut. So you've got to bring that trust segment because it seems like it's translating to people, you know, deleting their apps and, and just going back to incumbent banks uh, as, a, as a form of trust. Next slide, please. And compliance issues, I've reported on this as well. So there was a case by um, a... Romanian uh, customer from Revolut who's decided to take it to court because their account was frozen. Um, and also there's plenty of people talking about it online. They're Reddit groups, Facebook groups of, of Revolut's customers, and they're also ones of Monzo too. So all of this essentially adds up to people not being able to trust them. And as Michael Cummings-Bruce, who's a senior associate at Cook, Young and Keaton, he thinks that the problems that come from the firm's rapid expansion. So unfortunately, the adolescent growing pains are often a part of people's lives for these companies. Um, and obviously, they are trying to compete with the incumbents who have established uh, their compliance and uh, regulation procedures throughout. So they're, they're struggling with that at the moment. All right. I guess that's me. Um, I think there's a final poll. All right. There so how Yes, there is. Uh, so how confident are you with Challenger Bank internal compliance procedures? Confident, somewhat confident or not confident? And again, a very swift audience here. That's good. My gosh. Almost everyone has voted. Just give it another couple of seconds. Great, and just closing, and I'll share the results, um, which are basically uh, not that confident with the. No. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I guess then you guys can unpack that too within your your Q and A's and have to answer any questions. But for now, I will take it back over to Tanya to wrap up with her challenges. Uh, thanks, Sharon. Uh, of course, the challenges are manifold, and in addition to the lack of trust and the IT outages, you also have the public inertia. And more often than not, the issue here is that there is not much differentiation between the challenger bank, particularly in the consumer space, and the incumbent bank. And you could argue nowadays that 
mobile application, which used to be the highlight of a challenger bank, is now just as good as in most of the high street banks. And the rest of it, well, it's the same product, it's the same current account, it's the same overdraft with very high percentage. So why bother? Um, N26 and Holvi, which are European challenger banks, have discovered it the hard way. They entered the UK and stayed less than a year and promptly left due to the lack of uptake. The same with RBS trying to launch a consumer banking app called Bow. That survived literally a few months because nobody cared. Now, this is a, poses an interesting opportunity for banks who can find the right niche and grow as the banks that um, Sharon mentioned earlier. And also banks for specific lifestyles, like healthy lifestyle. There is a longevity bank, a bank for farmers, uh, a bank for expats, um, ethical banks, uh, and so on. Of course, in addition, you have increased competition from not only other startups, but also incumbents uh, who are launching their own uh, standalone digital challenges. And on this slide, you can see quite a few examples. Uh, so for the interest of time, let's go for the uh, next slide, please. Again, being mobile friend, mobile only, is it enough? The UK audience still enjoys a bit of a branch banking and online, even Starling, who has always advocated for the mobile only uh, bank, now has a desktop website and has promised to open a branch. And of course, uh, finally, uh, what's the profitability? How are these banks going to make money? At the moment, the business plan seems to be just get as many clients as you can, whatever means uh, possible and necessary, burn through the money for on advertising and marketing and onboarding, and then we'll figure out how to make money from them. Uh, the problem here is that um, the UK uh, population is not very keen on changing accounts. There is a stat somewhere that says people get divorced more than change their bank. Um, accounts, meanwhile, are expensive to run and maintain, and the majority of people who have um, accounts in challenger banks use them as auxiliary ones. So just a couple of hundred pounds here and there to show off in a trendy bar, and that's about it. And premium paid for accounts that uh, challenger banks are trying to introduce are not yet to are yet to gain popularity. Monzo has tried several times and had to withdraw every time. And its recent most latest offering is a premium current account, which everywhere else is pretty much free, but it offers you a metal card. So if you're that kind of person who likes it, then yes, you're prepared to pay 15 pounds a month. Go for it. And they're also currently offering travel insurance, which is quite an odd uh, proposition in the current climate. Uh, whether that's going to be successful, who knows? But as you can see, most banks, challenger banks, are losing money. And here on the slide, you can see the starling losses have doubled and are now standing this year at 52 million. And Monzo is posting eye-watering losses as well. So that brings us to a very quick talk through on the challenger banks. And we have a quick poll to conclude. So do you, our audience, currently use a challenger bank or perhaps plan to? So yes, I have my main account with a challenger bank, or I have an auxiliary account with a challenger bank. I don't have an account, but I'm pretty likely to get one, or no, no, no dealings and no plans to. Yeah, so, and again, uh, very interesting results here. A 
must say the results we're getting in are rather in line, if I can be frank, with uh, what I believe. Uh, so uh, here you can see uh, that it's either an auxiliary account or not really any intention to do so. Well, it's if you have an auxiliary account, it costs your challenger bank a lot of money, whilst you're not really making them any money whatsoever. So it's a tough market. Um, but I think that there is still plenty of opportunity. And if you find the right business model and tap into the right market, uh, a challenger bank can be very successful. Well, Sharon and Tanya, thank you so much. You went through a lot, a lot of interesting points and a, a, a torrent of questions here. Um, let, me, let me start with a couple of comments, actually. Uh, Darmesh Mystery uh, actually points out, and maybe it's just your relative youth, ladies, um, he, he points out that actually the first LG, uh, LBGT bank was Pink Bank, which was launched over 20 years ago back in the dot-com era. So it's, it's not a new phase we're going through. Uh, he also points out that was the same time that David Bowie launched a bank. So uh, we may be looked at from some sense of perspective. We're in a sort of a second wave, but it's 125 out there, certainly a big wave. And we'll make sure to post that link on the site. I got a lot of people asking about questions about slides. The slides are going to be posted, folks, as, as we almost always do. Um, then I've got a very interesting question, which for me, uh, strikes kind of at the heart of this uh, element. I mean, remember that banking and insurance are all about, in many ways, pooling. We, we mutually pool together to get something done. So Deborah Webster asks, if we're asking companies to be more diverse, does it make sense to have companies solely targeting marginalized groups? I think, yeah. So within this day and age, it would be great to say that, oh, it's all going to go just because we're talking about it. But they are banks that still do discriminate against people based on their ethnicity. So if you can then bank with someone who you know will not be able to do that to you in order for you to get your loan so that you can start your business or do whatever it is you want to do, then I think that's also great. Obviously, it's not an ideal situation, an ideal world to be in, but I just think in the current climate that we're in today, until something really does change systemically, then that's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. um, Deborah asked a supplementary question, which I think is a good one. Uh, has any challenger bank impressed either of you in how they tackled COVID? So far, from my perspective, everybody has been very much like for like. So on a par with the high street banks. And if anything, actually, for the um, challenger banks, it has been more difficult because some of them don't even have call centers and some of them don't have enough people to answer the queries. So with the increased number of inquiries and people wanting mortgage holidays and what have you, I think it's probably fair to say is that some of the high street banks have pulled better than the challenger banks. Um there's quite a quite a bit of encouragement here for you, uh, both of you, perhaps to um, in a future presentation or article <clears throat> to look at uh, that that previous era. Um, Simon Burroughs notes that 20 years ago we had a load of UK internet bank startups. So a cahoot smile if the default disappeared. So why does nobody talk? And um, <coughs> excuse me. And we have another um, interesting point. Uh, here about um, how mature do challenger banks have to be before a consumer develops a banking relationship. That's Bob McDowell. But if all these banks are disappearing very quickly, you know, is it just a tech play? 
In many cases, it might be. The thing to remember is there are various reasons for people starting banks. Quite a lot of them are there just in to make some money, sell it on to like either a venture capital or to another bank and just sort of laugh all the way to the bank, excuse the pun. So quite a few of them, of course, don't survive. Some of them are just uh, riding on sort of high valuations, but in reality don't really have a foundation or a platform to develop. Um, so I think to call a bank mature, uh, that's a very interesting question. It's like, when do you call calling a startup a startup? At which point it stops being a startup? I would guess that probably 10 years is a good, like seems like a good round number to have like a reasonable sort of maturity. I'm pretty sure a lot of these banking services out of 125 and banks are not going to reach that age, uh, but some of them will. And if we look at the previous, you know, era that some of the audience referred to, first direct is still going strong, right? It's been around for how long now? 30 years mm -hmm. plus. Yeah. Uh, and also on the internet side and digital side, it's not just the little startups that are so advanced. I think Nationwide Building Society is among the first in the UK that introduced internet banking, what we're talking decades ago. Well, Vladimir Dimitrov uh, points out that he has his main current account with the oldest challenger, First Direct, as you just mentioned, and his savings account with Zopa, uh, which he says is 10 years old. Actually, I was uh, one of the very early and the earliest, perhaps, investor into Zopa, and neither of these are comparable to the revolutes of today. Um, and he wonders, frankly, if some of these cultural comparisons against the incumbents are skewed. So, for example, for tech reliability, neobank out, outages, he believes, are disproportionately publicized. They occur as frequently at, at incumbents, uh, but are considered normal there. In compliance, blocking or freezing of individual accounts occurs far more frequently at incumbents, but never makes the headlines. Uh, so in his opinion, shouldn't uh, sh this shouldn't drive any conclusions in serious research. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, the incumbents did have quite a lot of the headlines. I sort of wanted to save um, any sort of time, but there were quite a lot of headlines with RBS, Santander, um, Barclays, Tesco Bank. Um, all of them had really, really bad like outages, about 18 as well. So there were quite a lot that took place. And with RBS specifically, because it was a lot of them from last year, but also the beginning of this year, literally right at the, the start of the year, they had an outage. Loads of customers did complain and they did make a lot of noise. I think it's just like in general, when there are these outages, it's whatever has an attractive headline. And to be honest, there have been quite a few with RBS specifically out there um, going under. So it's, it's not just the challenges. Um, I think people do like talking about the challenges just because it's, it's something new and, and interesting and they always have a scandal, but RBS for sure. <laughs> I can also add to that that it's partly challenges doing as well because they go out there and they make this bold statement how much better they are, that their technology is so much better, that their process and they're all, you know, so making a lot of noise, then you have to live up to that, right? And also yes. it would be interesting to see percentage wise, say Challenger Bank has a million clients, you know, and it freezes account of X amount percentage of clients. But an incumbent bank has 15 million clients. So percentage-wise, how their freezing of accounts, for instance, or whatever problems the clients are experiencing are comparable. Yeah. That's, well, I remember, you know, RBS, which certainly probably has never prided itself on its IT, you know, but it did take a quarter of the country out for, for days at one point. Uh, so that's big news. And on the other hand, uh, the banks that do effectively, as you point out, Tanya, set themselves up. 
And we've got quite a few questions here. Uh, I'm going to try and wrap this up in a comment for, for both of you. Um, I'll just start. The first is Reedy Caria is actually concerned about the difference between startup banks and challenger banks. Hold on to that. I think that's the core of the question. Uh, but we have a few other relevant comments to this. So Richard Jones says, I've been following this market for four years. Nobody is emerging a sustainable business. Can any of you see this changing? Um, uh, so back again, this startup uh, challenger. Uh, Darmesh Mystery, folks, we've got a long list now of banks uh, from the dot-com era. Also add Smile Bank to that list. I think there's a, a real thing here that there's something deep, well worth comparing. What was what was going on then? Uh, where did it all wind up? And is it actually any different than now? Uh, Richard Jones points out as well that First Direct overserves customers. And although it's uh, doing well, he, he believes it doesn't make an acceptable return when you account for it properly internally. Um, so anyway, back to that, but challengers uh, versus, you know, startups, what, what's the difference? I think that quite a lot of uh, banks that are appearing in the case, such as Zopa, are not a startup because they used to be a peer-to-peer -peer lender for many, many years, and they applied for a banking license uh, to offer wider banking services. So they're a challenger, yet they're not a startup. So I think that's a differentiation. And also in terms of sustainable business models, I think current accounts in the UK is hardly an exciting proposition. But for example, at the SME sector that has traditionally been underserved by big banks uh, can carry a very sustainable model. And if you look at slightly earlier challenger banks like Aldemore and Shawbrook, um, they are doing quite well. So they are, you would say, quite reputable, established, long-lasting by challenger bank standard sort of um, uh, banks. There are a lot of questions and comments here about the, the tension, really. Can you have a banking model um, or are you really a business as service? I'll read one out uh, from uh, Dharmesh Mystery. Is it tenable to build and grow a bank and be a business as a software provider? Very different businesses. Um, Bob McDowell's challenger banks need to be clear whether they're building banking technology capabilities, which can be licensed or wide labels, uh, or are they really trying to uh, handle consumer segments? Um, and, in, and in all of this, you know, to me, um, this comes back to the middle bit, which we seem to be missing here uh, that you provided, Sharon, uh, about diversity. Um, you know, are, are, is this really a banking issue or, a, or even a sectoral issue or is it about the increasing um, automation of, of society? Uh, in other words, is the tech sector branching out and bringing with it this lack of diversity as opposed to the sectors themselves? necessarily being um, at fault? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. So as I mentioned earlier with, you know, the people who are actually within technology, the people who go into it are all very homogenous. Um, and if we started having a different sort of pool, we might see something different. We might see something that does last. We might see something that, you know, might cater to a different set of people and it might stick. So I think it's also the stickiness of some of these things. Um, so if you do, as you mentioned, in terms of like going into the, the actual data and the people who are there, then if that changes, then we might see something different. We might see something that does last and something that is in this industry that people can say, hey, this is different. And this is how it, it's different to the bubble, as you mentioned before, with all these other banks that ended up just falling into oblivion because it was more or less just the same. So if we actually genuinely see something different with the stats from early on, then we might see this whole industry take a, a shift. Hmm. 
Um, Richard Jones uh, just points out his comments were about retail primarily. He does wonder if some of the niche businesses like Oak North are more likely to get to profitability. Um, Liz Thrussell points out that a challenger needs a USP, something unique, starling with a you know uh, pound euro account. Other, uh, otherwise, why switch? But I think there's a, a, a it's probably Edward Hamilton who's got the question, uh, which we might end on. I'm afraid, sadly, had a lot of good comments here. But um, you know, is what do you see as the white space for challenger banks? Uh, I, I think you meant that in a in a different way, Edward. But <laughs> what is the white space for challenger banks, and how can they disrupt the market? I guess I, I can start with that one. So um, as you've seen with in terms of like Smile, who have been there and Metro Bank, who have been there, um, I would like to also point out one that we've forgotten to, to mention, which is Marcus. So if you do come up with something that is unique, such as the savings, um, then just own it. You know, sadly, with Marcus, they have to keep rolling back on their savings um because of the climate that we're in so you can start with however much you want and it just keeps going lower and lower and lower as it goes but if you deliver people will remember that and people will stick with it so i know that there's so many customers who are still with marcus just because they delivered on the first um time that they they rolled out their great interest rate in comparison to what's happening now though it wasn't that great so yeah if you have something that's unique and you deliver then you'll stick i would like to add that pre-covid particularly the entrepreneur and small and medium business sector has been very much ripe for disruption. Um, and that's why the first wave of SME banks, Oak North including, have had quite a lot of success. And we've had like a whole bunch of new ones coming up, like you Recognize and Bank North and um, Alba and lots of others. But with the COVID and the current economic situation, that remains to be seen. An interesting case as um, for a bank that really found its niche is Clear Bank. A first clearing an agency bank in, uh, I can't remember, over 100 years or something. So uh, until then, it, that space was literally just sewn up by four big banks. And for the newcomer to come in and disrupt that and not offer a millennial cool card and not offer a current account or some sort of metal card or a cool app, but just say, look, this is a real problem and we're going to solve it for you because we offer you competition. That's interesting. Hmm. Well, we have uh, loads of questions and comments yet to come. I, uh, folks, all of the questions with your emails uh, will be uh, given to Tanya and Sharon, and they're welcome to get in touch with you directly. Um, um, but I've, I've got a whole host here. I've also got a whole host of compliments uh, about very enlightening and thank you. And, uh, and that's always a sign, sadly, that I have to draw things to a close. Um, it's been particularly good. I, I mean, my personal views on this is that so far the challengers have not exactly been challengers. They've been annoying mosquitoes, really, um, and 125 of them. And uh, there have been a number of studies straight lining that they wouldn't even get to a 15 or 20 percent market share for another half a century or more, which to me doesn't really uh, say it. Nobody seems to have quite gotten this space. And given the age of the audience, uh, I think I think we've also pointed out it's it's been it's happened before. Um, I, I personally view banking more and more as a utility, uh, more and more as something that's automated away. And particularly, uh, I wonder if we have a very old model in the UK where a lot of it is, oh, put an app on the front end of a, of a, of a normal system. Whereas when you go abroad, uh, particularly in, uh, in Asia, you see very, very different models of very close to the idea of embedded finance or finance on demand. So I think this is a, certainly an area well worth covering and we'd love to have you back uh, as you, as you conduct more and more of your studies. 
But uh, I need to give, if I might, uh, three rounds of thanks. So my first round is, as ever, to our sponsors who are uh, who are so kind at letting us uh, run on a whole variety of subjects. Uh, today, I think, was a very, very spot on. Um, I'd like to thank the audience today who've been particularly great. It's really nice to get that kind of feedback. It makes uh, the whole session uh, more rewarding. Uh, and I know Tanya and Sharon appreciated all of that. We do have some things coming up. Uh, quite interestingly, on Thursday, Ekaswehi Yahan is going to be talking to us about the future of insurance uh, from quite an interesting perspective, uh, not least uh, as she is the Secretary General of the Insurance Development Forum. And on Friday, we're going to have lessons from lockdown. Uh, particularly interesting, interesting uh, because uh, Revolut has been having a lot of problems with this employee share ownership. Uh, and so we'll be touching on that on Friday. And next week, uh, Herbie Skeet is going to be talking about a lifetime in market data from paper tapes to low latency. I really encourage you to see it because Herbie is, in fact, uh, one of the oldest uh, minority players in financial services and a very dear friend of mine. And I'm really delighted he's going to give us a perspective. But Herbie is by no means out of it. So he's actually got a good perspective on the future as well. Uh, please do try and attend that. Uh, but, of course, the real thanks have to go to our two presenters today. So thank you so much, Aaron and Tanya. You put a lot of work into it. Uh, unfortunately, I can't open up the floodgates of applause uh, with the technology, but I can provide you with uh, an applause meter. So this is my uh, <laughs> Korean karmic clapper uh, from my uh, Bulgoksa temple, uh, Buddhist temple. And I, uh, I would like to thank you very much uh, for all of your work today. And I know you'll be in touch with some of the people who've asked the questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.